of that pew Bible. We're going to read, um, or sorry, yeah, Matthew, uh, page 810. We're going to read verses 38 to 48 of Matthew 5. Before we do, I just want to say a quick thank you um, to all of you, just to commend you for those of you who are not going to do any standing or raising of hands or anything, and I don't even know who all I'm talking to. But to all of you who spent time going down to Camp Atterbury in these last several weeks to spend time with and have conversation with and um, just serve those refugees who have been there. This last, yesterday was the last day to be able to go down. And um, it, it, is a, it is quite a thing to be able to minister to those folks, all right? They come from a culture in which uh, part of what is, you know, we have certain things that we don't know are drilled into us by our culture, but they are, right? And one of the things that folks can come from a Muslim background and think uh, basically quite awful things about Christians, right? Quite oppositional things. And it's interesting, I, I was telling one person, it's not like we were going down, you know, standing on a soapbox and preaching or anything like this. That uh, I'm sure something was said of the Lord through those conversations, but also that this, is, this can be the beginning of actually a journey because for folks who come from that kind of background, there are a number of basically cultural obstacles that come in the way before their ears, get, you know, and the Lord is kind to, to do things like send a bunch of Christians, not from, just from our church, but from a number of churches, down to Camp Atterbury. And did you know that there were none, to my knowledge, according to the testimony of some folks who were there, there were no groups from mosques coming down. But here were a bunch of Christians from churches coming down to spend time with them, to play with kids and play volleyball and have conversation and all kinds of things. And who knows but that that might be just a little obstacle that, well, I guess Christians maybe aren't as awful as I once thought. And that can be the first step in a, in, a, in a road that the Lord brings some of those folks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of them are not staying here in Indianapolis. Most of them are going to a variety of places around the country. And so as you continue to pray for them, you can pray for the churches in those areas uh, that would love them and speak the gospel to them and help them to even climatize, as it were, to this, uh, to this country. But uh, I want to read Matthew 5, 38 to 48. So if you did that, the Lord bless you for it. Um, it's such a good thing. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. This is what the Spirit says, and this is our Lord Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only those, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we now come to your word, and we seek your help by your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that you would fill me with your spirit as I speak and fill us all with your spirit as we hear, that we might hear and discern and love and believe your truth and that our lives might be changed and shaped by it, that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, I want to uh, full disclosure here, we are not going to get really, we're not really going to get to verse 48, all right? That you be, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what you need to know about that verse is that it basically sums up everything that Jesus has been doing from verses 21 to 48. He has been calling them to a higher standard. You remember what Jesus said before this whole thing began back in verse 19 or 20, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must go deeper. It must go higher. And here he concludes with, here's the other bookend, if you will, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this kind of statement isn't unusual in the Bible. We have, you must be holy, right, as I am holy. Uh, Luke's version of this says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Ephesians 4, we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. First uh, John 4, we are to love because God loves us and here be perfect as he is perfect. And the reality is the longer we go along, the more we know we'll never actually reach that perfection in this life, right? So if you ever come to a place where you start to think, I think I've pretty much arrived. I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm not sure there's much growth left to be doing. Well, just go into a private room with Jesus and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and let him set you straight, right? And let him set me straight. Uh, and so, um, so anyway, so that's as much as I'll say on verse 48. So I want to spend the bulk of our time on 38 to 47. And what we find here is what we found in all the other sections that started back in verse 21. And that is that what we find is twisted truth. Twisted truth. You see, in all these statements where Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's not actually confronting the truth of the Old Testament. He's confronting the twisted truth that the Pharisees are teaching. Demonic truth, really. It doesn't seem that bad, right? But it's demonic. Anytime you take the truth and you twist it just a little bit, it becomes a lie. And the father of lies is the devil himself. In fact, one of his, his greatest schemes is to take the truth and just twist it a little bit so that it almost sounds like the truth and it sounds more believable so he can draw us in and latch onto us and suck the spiritual strength from us like a leech. That's what he tried to do with the Lord Jesus, isn't it, in the wilderness? Remember, he twists the truth. 
He starts quoting things at Jesus. But Jesus sees right through him, doesn't he? And he resists because he was just twisting the truth. Now we could look at a number of examples where we see this kind of twisting of the truth today, but I'm only going to mention one, the one that's relevant to our text, and that is the truth of God's justice, that in the end God will punish all evil, and that God has instituted within this world things like governments to punish evil. And what Satan loves to do is to come along and twist that, not to say that justice isn't good, okay? But he'll come and he'll say, you know, justice is good, but you know, it's not just for God. It's not just for governments. It's for you. If you're wronged, you can exact revenge because that would be justice. You can retaliate because that would be justice. It's the same kind of lie that the enemy told Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? This whole business of the knowledge of good and evil, that's not just for God. That's not just for God. That's for you too. You'll be like God. You know, you'll be like God if you actually exact justice against other people when they hurt you. And it draws us in. And this kind of retaliation is a common practice. It's a common practice among siblings, isn't it? It's a common practice among teenagers. It's a common practice among spouses. It's a common practice among co-workers. But friends, it cannot be a common practice for Christians. You see, the way the world works, which is you do that to me and I'll do that to you, that's not how the church works. That's not how we ought to live. Jesus makes that distinction that those who follow him don't respond to insults and enemies in the same way that the world does. In fact, I would say that Jesus' point here is that Christians must put off defending their rights and put on love. Now, that may have you shivering in your boots just a bit. This whole business of rights, that's like sacrosanct. We're in the United States of America, after all. Don't you know where we are? Why, yes, I do. But this is all what Jesus is saying all the same. We need to understand what he's saying. We need to put off what Jesus tells us to put off. And we need to put on what Jesus tells us to put on. This whole business of putting off and putting on is the Christian way. It's the way that we grow. We put off words and attitudes and behaviors associated with the old life, with the life before we met Christ, with sinful life. And we put on words and attitudes and behaviors that are Christ-like, the life of righteousness, the new life. And that's actually what we see in these two paragraphs. That's why I'm taking them together. They say they're two sides of the same coin, actually. They say Christians must put off defending their rights and put on love. All right, so let's take those in turn. First, put off defending your rights. Let me read again verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now the words up there in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, are found a few different times within the Old Testament law. They're in Exodus, they're in Leviticus, and they're in Deuteronomy. And the goal of the eye-for-an-eye principle is limitation. It is meant to limit punishment. It does it in two ways, okay? Eye-for-an-eye limits the amount of punishment. You see it there, right? Eye-for-an-eye. It's not a life-for-an-eye. It's an eye for an eye. In fact, so the severity of the punishment is meant to match the severity of the offense, the severity of the crime, all right? But it doesn't just limit the amount of punishment. In the Old Testament, it limits who does the punishing. It limits who does the punishing. You see, the laws of the Old Testament were given to Israel, to the nation, to be governed as a nation. In fact, in Deuteronomy 19, when eye for an eye, those words come up, there's actually inserted this business of judges being involved to determine what the punishment should be and how it should be carried out and whether somebody is guilty or not. And so those in leadership were meant to carry this out. So it limits what the punishment is And who does the punishment? But what had happened was the Pharisees took this truth and they twisted it. You see, they took it out of the law courts and they put it in the living room. They took it away from the judges and they gave it to individuals. They've twisted justice into revenge and retaliation. And that impulse to retaliate, to take matters into our own hand, that, that's still with us today, isn't it? That's, I don't mean that to be a rhetorical question. That's still with us, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you just imagine a little boy eating the last cupcake. The cupcake he was told was for his brother. And then that brother comes. And the brother doesn't start quoting Matthew 5, does he? The, ma- the brother is going to retaliate. He may retaliate with hateful words. He may retaliate with some kind of wrestling move. He may retaliate with a clenched fist. He may retaliate in any number of ways. Or take a woman driving home from work. Someone cuts her off. Someone is continuously honking at her. Does she start quoting Matthew 5 to herself? No. What does she do? Oh, well, you think you're going to get off at that exit, but you're not getting off at that exit. I'm just going to stay right with you so you can't get over. Or I'm going to pull right up on your bumper at the next red light. Now, obviously, there are far more severe types of retaliation that take place, aren't there? where lives are lost, but it's all variations on the same theme. It's all twisted truth. And behind that heart of retaliation, 
behind the heart of revenge is the notion of defending my rights, defending what I deserve, my right to a life not disrupted or disturbed by you, even the right to my cupcake and the right to my lane of traffic. But Jesus says, put off defending your rights. Do not resist the one who is evil, which may seem confusing at first because we are told to resist the evil one. Resist the devil and he must flee from you, we're told. And we know that governments were actually put in place not just to promote what is good, but to punish and resist evil. And the fact is that it's not wrong to make an appeal for justice, for something to be done about some wrong. I mean, Jesus actually does this in his trial. Do you remember? He's speaking, and then uh, he speaks to, he's speaking to the high priest, and the officer in the court does not like what is happening, so he slaps Jesus. You remember this moment in John 18? And Jesus says, what have I, if I've said something wrong, tell me. But if I haven't, why did you slap me? That is a confrontation of something that's done wrong. That is an appeal to make right what's been done wrong. Jesus isn't throwing out the notion of justice. He just wants us to not twist it, to take it and make it the instinct to defend our right, to carry out our own version of justice. You will not infringe upon my right to be undisturbed at this moment to be uninterrupted. Sinclair Ferguson writes, do not make your rights the basis of your relationships with others. And that's a pretty good summary of what Jesus is going after here. And Jesus gives us four situations where we might just do that, where our rights may be all that we're concerned about. All right? So let's just walk through them. We're going to walk through. I'm just going to identify each one with one word. The first one is turn. Turn. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Verse 39, verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's important that we understand what Jesus is talking about. He's not actually talking about things like self-defense. And so we ought not put an asterisk here and take a whole side note on what he's on some other place in the Bible. We can go to other places to think about the, the a biblical understanding of those things. But what this is happening, if someone slaps me on my right cheek and the majority of the human race is right-handed, do you know how that has to happen? Backhand. It's a backhanded slap which is a slap of insult. It was a tremendous insult in that day to be slapped like that. And it's still in, in that culture, in the Near East, it is very, very offensive to be slapped like that. It's insulting to be slapped backhanded like that. And in response to that insult, Jesus says, don't retaliate. Don't defend some notion of your right to be treated with respect, to not be insulted. Now I can feel somebody's hand just wants to raise at that point, right? Uh, excuse me. Doesn't, doesn't that make Christians out to be doormats? One of you is thinking it. Probably more than one of you. 
So we should probably answer it, yeah? Well, let me tell you, if someone were to walk up to me and... Well, let me tell you, well, I already told you this story. I'm not going to tell it again. If somebody walked up to me and just backslapped me across the face, what is the easiest thing for me to do at that moment? The easiest. Come on. You know the answer. Slap him right back, right? I told you this story about the Sunday school superintendent in Nashville came up to me because we had painted a room without his permission. Painted a room. And this man's like 80-something-year-old, and he's poking me in the chest and asking me, who do I think I am? So I'm relaying this story to the, the chairman of deacons. And he says, well, you're a better, better man than I am. I would have leveled him. That's the easy way, isn't it? Do you know that takes no strength at all? That takes no strength of character to just shoot right back at somebody who shot at you. You know what takes strength? Not retaliating. You know what takes strength that only the Holy Spirit of God can give you? Not retaliating. You see, the one who just immediately wants to launch back in and retaliate is actually a doormat for the devil himself. So Jesus says, don't do that. Trust the Lord to deal with the one who disrespects you. God doesn't miss any of these things. He'll deal with it in his time and in his way. The second word is let Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, here we have a legal situation, a lawsuit. Now, look, it would be really unusual for someone to take you to court for your tunic. They are very common things, that long garment that, that hangs close to the body, all right? It would be like, you remember that, uh, that, that long dressing robe that, that Scrooge wears, you know, the really long thing? It'd be like wearing that. Not even his nice outer robe, the undergarment, all right? It'd be very unusual. But Jesus says, if somebody were to take you to court and sue for your tunic, you give them your cloak as well. Now, that may not sound like much. The cloak is the thing that goes on top of that tunic. But actually, it's quite a serious thing because in the Old Testament... A man had a legal right to his cloak. In Exodus 22, if let's say I'm a poor man and I take a loan and I give my cloak as collateral, the person I borrow from has to give me back my cloak before the sun goes down because it's not just a fashion piece. It's what a person would cover up with and stay warm with at night. And God says, if you don't give him that back by sundown and he appeals to me, I'm on his side. So Jesus says, if they sue for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. In other words, your rights, even your legal rights, shouldn't be your greatest concern in life. You should be willing to abandon them for the sake of Jesus Christ. third word, go. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Now remember, in Israel, uh, the Romans are in charge, and at any moment, one of them could conscript you into service. You remember they did this with Simon the Cyrene? Remember that? Matthew 27, uh, Jesus is about to be crucified, and they tell him to carry the cross of Jesus on his behalf. The Romans were allowed to do that. But there was a limit to what they could do. They couldn't just make you do that all day. There were limits on these things. But even so, being forced into service by the Romans was humiliating to the Jews. Humiliating. They hated it. But Jesus says, don't just do what you're asked and then claim what you're asked and then claim your right to be done. Do more. Go farther. Why? Well, Sinclair Ferguson offers an answer that I think is helpful. Thus he may see that you have another emperor and belong to another empire with principles that are infinitely stronger than the laws of Rome. Don't defend your rights. And then the fourth one is give. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this is obviously not the same kind of confrontation as being slapped in the face or slapped with a lawsuit or being forced into working for the Romans. But still, it's an opportunity to surrender your rights, isn't it? Don't you have a right to what's in your wallet legally? I mean, it's yours. You have the right to the groceries in your cupboard. There's no legal obligation to give, and you have the right to keep everything that you have. But Jesus is saying, surrender that right and give. Look on others with compassion and give. You see, all four of these actually are about putting off the defense of our own rights. Turn. Let. Go. Give. Now, some people will hear this and think this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is the stuff for weak minded folks. I don't want that kind of Christianity. I want Christianity, but I want my rights too. I I love the right. I have the right to my rights. What are you going to say about that, Pastor? I think I would just ask. Who had rights like no other and set them aside to come and save you? Jesus. Who turned the other cheek? Literally. And not only took the insults and the mockery, but the slaps and the beatings and the crown of thorns? Jesus. Who let them have his garments? So they could just cast lots and divide them. Jesus, who went the extra mile and suffered the humiliation of the Romans and was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Jesus, who gave himself for beggars like us. Jesus. So, friend, I would just ask you before you start to make the case to defend your rights consider the one who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself. Consider the one who could have called 10,000 angels to keep him from going to the cross, but he didn't that he might save you. Consider the one who emptied himself of all but love and bled and died for you. Consider Jesus our Savior and then follow him and put off defending your rights. But don't just do that. The next paragraph tells us to put on love. Put on love. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For, even the, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In place of defending your rights, put on love. Rather than putting yourself at the center of your life, put others there. Now, most people agree that we should love, right? You walk around, you're not going to find a bunch of people saying, oh, no, we shouldn't love. We definitely shouldn't love. We should do a lot of other things, but we shouldn't love. You're not going to find that. But what you will find is that Jesus is telling us about a love that is different from everything we see around us. Because the love that most people are okay with is what we might call quid pro quo love, right? It's an exchange. It's I love you if you love me. I will be kind to you if you are kind to me. I will treat you well if you treat me well. I will serve you if you serve me. Now, nobody actually says those words. What happens when I find out that the other, I don't think that I've decided the other person doesn't love me or treat me well or isn't kind or isn't serving. I'm just going to cut them off, right? That's what the world would do. You don't owe them anything. This is quid pro quo love. It's like some of the gift exchanges uh, within some families at Christmas, right? I mean, like, I'm going to get them a gift, but I'm going to get it with the idea that I think I know how much they'll spend on the gift they're going to give me. Or, better yet, I'll give you a $25 gift card, you give me a $25 gift card. Ah, don't we feel better about that? That is quid pro quo right there. That is, I mean, that is, that is textbook. That's the kind of love that people talk about. So when they hear about love for enemies, they figure, this is something unusual. This must be like next level love, you know, like for apostles and uh, pastors and missionaries. This cannot be for the everyday Christian. I mean, I don't necessarily wish, wish those people harm, but I don't love those who don't love me. I mean, if they become Christians and become more loving, oh, okay, sure. But I, but I don't have to actually be kind to people who are cruel. I don't have to serve those who are always demanding from me. I certainly don't have to love those who hate me. You know, the kind that will just backhand slap you across the face or sue for your tunic or force you to work long hours. 
mean, I don't have to do that, right, Jesus? I don't have to do that, Jesus, right? I don't have to. Right, Jesus? And crickets is all that comes in response. And then he answers, well, that's what the tax collectors do. That's what the Gentiles do. Friends, those words would sting. Because even though tax collectors were Jews, like the people listening to Jesus, they were traitors. They worked with the Roman government to extort the Jewish people. It was basically legalized theft. And Gentiles? They're not even one of us. They're outsiders. They're dogs. Jesus, you're saying if I only love those who love me, I'm like them? Yes. Because that is not Christian love. That is not Christ-like love. You see, Christian love isn't reserved just for certain people. You know, well, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Friend, that's the mantra of the Pharisees, isn't it? That's the mantra of the world. And Jesus puts his hands up and says, no, 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 no. Love your enemies. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, loving enemies shows that you're like God. You see, he doesn't just send rain on the fields of the unjust, on the just farmers. He sends it on the unjust farmers. The, the gift of the sun to warm, to stimulate crop growth, to move us with its beauty as it rises and as it sets, it's not just for Christians. It's for us all. And this kind of indiscriminate love sets you apart from the world. It marks you as one of God's children. It shows that you bear the family resemblance. You see, we, you love your enemies because God loves his enemies. And he does, his love is deeper and more significant than sending sunshine and rain, isn't it? Because his love sent Jesus. You see, when Jesus says... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's not saying, do what I say, but not what I do. He's saying, follow me. Because Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. He hangs on the cross, dying a humiliating death of crucifixion, and his thoughts turn to those who have done this to him, those who've mocked him and scourged him and beat him and tortured him and killed him. And rather than hurl curses on them, he blesses them by praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loves his enemies. 
Not only does he pray for those who persecute him, he loves them. His love doesn't stop at praying, you see. His love is seen in his dying. That's how he has loved us. The Bible says that we, by nature, are enemies of God, and yet Christ died for us. Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. So God loves you. God loves me. God loves us. He demonstrated that love in Christ dying for us so that we, his enemies, could become his friends, God's children. And even now, dear friend, listen, you may not be a Christian. You may hate God. You may oppose God. You may laugh at his word. You may ignore his law. You may mock him to his face. Or you just may not give God the time of day. But you're his enemy. But the good news is that if you turn to him in repentance and in faith, you won't find a God ready to punish you, though you deserve to be punished. You will find a God ready to embrace you, to love you. You see, here's the reality, friends. If God only loved those who loved him, if God only loved the good ones, he'd love none of us. But because God loves his enemies, he will love all who come to him through faith in Jesus without exception no matter what kind of enemy you've been to this point. I wonder if you would come to him today. I wonder if you would turn. I wonder if you would see him differently than you've seen him till now. To see him as he is and as he's demonstrated himself in the Lord Jesus Christ as one who will love even you. And for us as believers, as we think about what Jesus has done, that he has prayed for those who persecuted him, that he loves his enemies, we hear Peter's words, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, dear Christian, if this is your Savior, if Jesus is your Savior, if Jesus is your Lord, if you want to be like him, then these words about turning the other cheek and, and, and about loving your enemies shouldn't sound strange. They should sound sweet because that's what he's done for you and should make you want to follow in his footsteps so that each time you love your enemy, each time you pray for your persecutor, each time you turn the other cheek, each time you go the extra mile, each time you do these things, you lend credibility to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you share. Each time you do these things, you shine as a light of Christ in a dark and crooked world. Each time you do these things, you glorify Jesus, your Savior. And so right now, dear believer, 
Commit yourself with the help of the Spirit to put off defending your rights and to put on love. Because let me tell you something. One of those two can be used by God to bring people into the kingdom. And the other, not so much. You have to choose one or the other. Rights or love. What would this last week show? Did you retaliate this last week? Did you fired back when fired upon? What will this week show? Put off defending your rights. Put on love. Let's pray. Father, if you don't give us grace to apply these words, they will not be applied. If you do not help us to see our Lord Jesus putting off his rights to put on love and rescue us, we will not follow in his steps. And so we ask you to give us grace that we might do this. I pray for those who don't know you, who are not Christians, who have been toying with the idea of religion or church for a time or for a long time, maybe for their whole lives. But have never seen this Jesus the way he is as one who emptied himself that we might be filled. I pray that you will give them grace to turn to him even now to call out for forgiveness of sin, for salvation, for new life, for your mercy. And I pray for all of us who know that mercy that as we have known your boundless love and your fathomless grace, that we will show to the world your compassion, that we will follow in the footsteps of our Savior, that we will put off defending our own rights and put on love for his sake. We pray it in his name. Amen.